Daniel chapter 9, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 3. Daniel 9, verses 1 through 3. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Heavenly Father, We thank you, Lord, for this reading of your holy and sacred word, Father. We do call on you that you would be pleased, Father, to bless us as we look to you now, Father, to be our teacher and our guide, that, Father, you would teach us what these things mean. With this prayer, we confess, Lord, that in and of ourselves, we, we do not have that ability, Father. We don't want it. Father, what we want can only come from your hand, O Lord. We don't want to be able to do this without you. So, Father, we pray that you would be pleased to speak to us, O Father, and teach us from your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have noticed that there's something quite different this morning. Um, those of you who have been around for this study from its entirety is that really for most of our study in Daniel, we've taken entire chapters at a time. You were probably prepared for a pretty long reading because that's been the way it's been for the most part through our entire uh, study of Daniel. And we've taken the chapters really as they are. M- many of them are entire literary units that we've taken uh, together, correct? And uh, uh, but this morning, we deviate that from that because there is something that takes place in the first three verses of Daniel 9 that is cru- just crucially significant. And um, I want to leave you kind of on the edge of your seat about that. I'm not going to let that quite out of the bag right away. Um, I could, but I won't because I want to be ornery. <laughs> but I also think it will um, help really see it. There's a shock factor here that is hard for us to see unless we wrestle a little bit. So I want to wrestle. There's a sense in which, in fact, more than a sense, really you may have already picked up on this, that if you kind of noticed that every message in Daniel so far has kind of been the same message, I mean, it could be, it could be really brought down to this against all appearances to the contrary. God is in control. I mean, we're getting that from several different vantage points as we go along, and I've been trying to really bring that that out in each chapter, because each chapter has its own story about that. But the overarching message in each chapter really is against all appearances that seem completely contrary to this fact. God's in control. Um, I think, you know, 
it'd be a good time maybe to do just a little bit of review. I'll try to discipline myself in this so they don't take a 10-ton dump truck and dump details on your heads this morning. But um, let's, let's just think this through. I mean, if you, if you will, just turn back a couple of pages to Daniel chapter 1. You remember it was several months since we've been back there. But in Daniel 1, we've looked at these verses many times. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and what? They besieged it. Okay, nothing unusual about that. In antiquity, in the ancient Middle East, there was a lot of fighting going on. In modern times, in the Middle East, there's a lot of fighting going on. There's nothing unusual here, is there? About one nation marching into another nation and trying to sack it. But then when we get to verse 2, we got something that's very unusual. And the Lord God gave... Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Say what? Nebuchadnezzar is a heathen king, and a heathen king marches into Jerusalem, the city of God, and he sacks the city of God. And he even, if we continue reading in verse 2, he goes, uh, he goes into the temple, into the house of God, and what does he do? He helps himself to the goodies, and he brings them to the land of Shinar, which is the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, notice the little g, and place the vessels in the treasury of his God. That's what ancient kings did, and you remember I brought this out several times. I mean, that is very theologically significant. Nebuchadnezzar goes into uh, Jerusalem, he sacks Jerusalem, and after he conquers Jerusalem, he says, guess what? I conquered you because my God is, my gods rather, are greater than your God. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go even further. I'm going to show you. I'm going to go into the temple. I'm going to take all the goodies of your defeated and conquered God, and I'm going to carry him back to my little shrine that I got back in the land of Shrinar. Doesn't appear very good, does it? Doesn't appear very good. I haven't brought this point out until now. I'll bring it out now. Um, it appears that Nebuchadnezzar's God's, I mean, without verse 2, it appears that Nebuchadnezzar's God is, God's are greater than the Lord God Almighty to the watching world who don't have verse 2. And the point I want to bring out that I haven't brought out till now is that God is pleased for the benefit of His people to allow His honor to be trampled upon. Isn't He? To the watching world that doesn't have this little verb here, gave, what does it look like? To the watching world that doesn't have verse 2 that says, oh, the Lord gave Nebuchadnezzar Victory over Jerusalem. To the world that doesn't have that verse, what does it look like? And what looks like it normally looks like? Well, Nebuchadnezzar's gods were greater than the Lord Almighty. That's the way it looks, isn't it? God had promised, we're going to, in a little bit, we're going to see, God had promised that this would happen. But the point I want to make right now is that God was willing to allow His, His, His glory and His honor to be, in a sense, defaced and trampled upon by a heathen king and a heathen army for the overall benefit of the redemption 
of God's people. As soon as we start thinking along these lines, well, then our minds go where? I think think they immediately go to the cross. Because what do we have happening on the cross? Who's hanging on the cross? The the God-man, the man Jesus, who is both God and man, hanging on the cross. And to the watching world, what does it look like? This man who's hanging naked on a cross, who seems to be completely helpless, he's the Messiah? They said, if you're king of the Jews, come down and save yourself. But what they didn't realize was he was accomplishing the salvation of all those who would trust in him against all appearances. God was perfectly in control, wasn't he? Perfectly in control. The message of God's sovereignty continues in chapter 1 by way of his providence. I mean, God prepares Daniel and his three friends for the exact positions that he wants them in. We made application of that and... uh, It's no accident, you know, uh, tomorrow morning or even this afternoon, some of you have to work. Uh, We scatter off into various places, some of which we would rather not be. But in God's providence, that's where we are, isn't it? We are where we are. And we see this going on in Daniel chapter 1 and chapter 2. God reveals to Nebuchadnezzar and us that it is he who changes the times and seasons. If you look at chapter 2, if you look at verse uh, 21... He changes times and seasons. He removes kings. He sets up kings. He gives Nebuchadnezzar this dream of the statue. You remember the head of gold, the arms and chest of silver, the midsection of bronze, the legs and the feet of iron, and then the uh, stone that's uh, cut from the mountain but not with human hands that comes and crashes the whole thing down. And Daniel interprets that for him and says, you know, Nebuchadnezzar is like this. Uh, Earthly kingdoms, they come and they go, but there's this kingdom that God's establishing represented by the stone that's going to crush all these others, and uh, that kingdom doesn't, uh, doesn't go, Nebuchadnezzar. Um, that kingdom is, uh, endures forever. And what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He, he rebels against that in chapter 3, and he says, you know, okay, I'm going to make a statue I'm going to make a statue, but it's not just going to have a head of gold. It's going to be all of gold. And that's chapter 3, and he sets this statue up, all of gold, and he commands his entire empire to worship this, this statue of gold. Nebuchadnezzar is saying, no, that ain't the way it's going to go. I am on top, and when nations are on top, what do they want? They want to stay on top. Every nation that's been on top has wanted to stay up. Who won when you, when you reach the top, who wants to say, okay, I've been up here long enough now. It's, it's someone else's turn. That's just not the way earthly kingdoms go, is it? And Nebuchadnezzar's on top, and he's trying to unify his kingdom by, by uh, virtue of worshiping this, this 90-foot statue of gold. And you either worship this statue or you go to the fiery furnace. And Daniel's three friends refused to worship. So what happened? God showed his sovereignty by delivering them from the flames, didn't he? Then we get to chapter 4, and God demonstrates his ability to set up kings and remove them by humbling Nebuchadnezzar. If you look at chapter 4 and verse 30, you remember that while Nebuchadnezzar was walking on his roof, you know, he looked out over Babylon and said, chapter 4, verse 30, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? 
he's strutting around on the roof of his, of his palace and he's looking over at the city of Babylon, which historians tell us was breathtaking. There was a garden that was one of the seven wonders of the world. And Nebuchadnezzar's taking full credit for himself, isn't he? And then what does God do? At that very moment, he removes Nebuchadnezzar from his station as king. He gives him a mind of a beast and sends him out in the field where Nebuchadnezzar now, for a period of time, is on all fours eating grass like the beasts. Could you imagine the talk around the palace shortly after that took place? What's up with the king? You know, he always was a little unstable, but man, I never saw this coming. And that is amazing. I mean, it's amazing how God just removes him just like that. And I think that's amazing. He's the most powerful man in the world at this period of time. And I think it's amazing the way he removes him. But you know what I think is more amazing? Is the way he reestablishes him. I mean, could you imagine the vying for power in his, in his wake? I mean, when there's a vacuum in power, there's always people that want to take it up. Can you imagine the power struggles going on in that palace? And in the meantime, we have this homeless man on all fours out eating grass and barking like a dog, not tending to anything. His hair is growing long. His fingernails are growing long. And who's going to bring up putting him back in the palace? But that's exactly what happens. After his period of time of humbling is, is through, what does God do? He puts him right back in, and we're told he reestablishes him with more glory than what he had formerly had. Absolutely amazing. Against all appearances, God is in control. In chapter 5, God brings Babylon to an end, just like he said he was, like he said he would. And the head of gold gives way to the Medes and Persians, who are represented by the arms of silver. In chapter 6, God shows his sovereignty over the hungry lions. He delivers Daniel from, the, from their teeth. When we get to chapter 7, we have been given glimpses from behind the scene. You know, in chapter 7, the, the, the genre changed. You know, the, you, you can read these stories. The stories of Daniel 1 through 6 just have you on the edge of your seat as you read them. And then you get to chapter 7, and it's like, what? What happened? And what do we make of all of this strange stuff? Well, now we're entering into the into the field of apocalyptic literature where you have to remember as you read through this stuff, it's meant to be seen with the eyes. These are word pictures and we get this graphic illustration of one like the Son of Man approaching the Ancient of Days. I was, I was thinking that Ancient of Days would be a great song for us to sing this morning and when you know it's the first song we sang this morning and you know, blessing and honor, glory and power be unto the Ancient of Days. You know, this song comes right from Daniel chapter 7. The Ancient of Days is symbolically representing Father. And one like the Son of Man is Christ. And He's being crowned with all authority and, and uh, uh, with absolute majesty and splendor. And in chapter 8, uh, which we looked at most recently, we have a vision which reveals events that will take place over the course of the next several centuries from Daniel's time. And the astounding thing about it is that God does this with such incredible detail and accuracy. And I hope you remember, it was three weeks ago, the points that I was making when we were looking at, at Daniel 8 was God is the God of the future, isn't he? And today's future is tomorrow's history, right? 
So he's the God of history. And when we bring that down out of the ladder of abstraction, God really can't be the God of the future and the God of history unless he's the God of our own personal stories. He's the God of our story. You remember all of that? He's the God of our story. And that brings us to chapter 9. And you notice in each chapter, the message is really kind of the same. It's the sovereignty of God. It's the sovereignty of God over and over again. Against all appearances, God is in control. Now, if you look at chapter 9 and verse 1 with me, you're probably, some of you are probably thinking, I never get to chapter 9 and verse 1. Well, we're here now. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. Daniel adds in verse 2, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, namely 70 years. Now, what's going on here? Daniel's studying his Bible. He's, he's, he's studying the prophecy of Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah is now deceased. Jeremiah has now gone to be with the Lord by this point. Uh, Jeremiah was significantly older than Daniel, but at this point in time, Daniel is, is quite elderly himself. When Daniel was deported into Babylon, he was a very young man, probably a teenager. And now 70 years have gone by. So you do the math. Uh, Daniel's in his 80s anyway, um, quite possibly around Pap's age. So he's a, uh, an older, um, an older fellow. And out of his study in Jeremiah, he realizes, he, he comes to the rightful conclusion that uh, the 70 years, that Israel would be in captivity for 70 years. And the prophecy of which Daniel speaks is found in Jeremiah. There's a couple places, and I'd like us to turn there because I want to look at that this morning. If you just turn back uh, towards the front of the Bible, the first prophet you come to is Ezekiel, and then Lamentations, and then Jeremiah. And if you go to Jeremiah 25, we're going to look at some verses from Jeremiah 25. I thought it would be really interesting to look at the very words that Daniel was studying. Jeremiah 25, starting with verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Hosiah, king of Judah. That was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. For 23 years, from the 13th year of Hosiah to the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. What's going on here is Jeremiah is saying, listen, the Lord's been speaking to me and giving me messages to speak to you for a long time here, and your hearts have been hard. You have not been listening. Continuing in verse 4, you have neither listened nor inclined your hearts to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, turn now, every one of you, from, <coughs> excuse me, from his evil way and evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you, 
and your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. Verse 7, Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar. Now, mind you, Nebuchadnezzar hasn't invaded yet. Nebuchadnezzar is, is picking up steam. Uh, he, he, he's rising to power here. Babylon is, is rising to power at this point in time. And God is, basically what God is doing here is he's raising up a paddle upon which he's going to give a spanking to Judah with is what's happening here. Yeah. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, I will bring against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation. God's telling everybody, God's making it really clear what's going to happen here. Uh, He's not pulling any punches. Verse 10, Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstone, the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon. How long? What's it say? Seventy years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish who? I'm going to punish the paddle. I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon the land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations for, every, for many nations and great kings shall make slaves even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. You see, God's telling them, you know, He's telling them, you know, He's putting all this stuff forward long before it's ever come into play, isn't He? He's got complete control here. Now, it gets even better. I mean, turn just a couple of chapters to chapter 27, Jeremiah 27, and look at verse 7 with me. Chapter 27, verse 7. All the nations shall serve him. Who is him? The antecedent of him is Nebuchadnezzar. All of the nations shall serve him and his son. Nebuchadnezzar's son was Nabonidus. And his grandson, who was Belshazzar. Now, Belshazzar should ring a bell. Belshazzar is the character who threw the banquet in Daniel 5 and said, okay, we're going to throw this banquet. And you remember the handwriting on the wall that, that caused him to... Um, you remember, while well, he got so scared that there probably was a puddle under where he was standing. Do you recall that? Uh, he turned white, his face changed. Uh, Belshazzar. Jeremiah says, All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes, then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. And if you turn to chapter 29 in verse 10, Chapter 29 and verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when what? Seventy years are completed for Babylon. I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. These are the very words Daniel has taken in and studying and receiving with faith. 
he's recognizing, okay, as he's studying these passages, and now Babylon has fallen because now the Medes are in control. It's fallen just like God said it would. Now Daniel realizes that they're near the end of their captivity. And now here's my point. God has decreed 70 years of captivity in Babylon, correct? That's the decree. And Daniel knows the decree. And is there any possibility that this could fail? No. So what does Daniel do? Now go back to chapter 9 and verse 3. What does Daniel do? Verse 3 of our text. He turned his face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Now what's shocking about that? What's the shock factor about that? If God has already decreed that this is going to take place, why does Daniel need to pray for mercy? Are you with me? If God has already decreed this, why does Daniel need to pray for mercy? If God has already decreed that the Israel was to suffer 70 years of Babylonian captivity for their sins, and these 70 years are now up, why does Daniel need to pray for mercy? And the point of this message this morning is that God's sovereignty doesn't diminish or override or trump human responsibility. It's an important message for this point in time in the book. In fact, the title of the message this morning is God's Sovereignty and Our Responsibility. This is a crucial issue because here we are week after week getting these messages that God is sovereign, God is sovereign, God is sovereign, God is sovereign. <coughs> and we can get the impression here, listening to this, that God has decreed everything, therefore everything is done. We don't need to do anything. We can just set our feet back up and uh, kick our feet up and, hey, this, this is all a done deal. The reason I say this is because once upon a time in a ministry Tammy and I were involved in, I was a very young Christian at the time and I was very excited and a lot of things I wanted to do. And I remember being in a meeting with a lot of guys who I loved hanging out with. They were so much fun, these guys. Older guys, much older than myself. And I loved the fact that they invited me to be part and I, I just loved hanging out with them. And I had all of these ideas that I wanted to share and I wanted to do this and do this and do this. And one of them said to me, he finally said in a meeting, he says, hey Rick, hey Rick, hey Rick, hey Rick. Easy, slow down. And I did need a little bit of that. I did need a, a little bit of that. And I understood that. I, okay, I do need it. I am really excited about Christ and I want to do everything at once. But then what he said next was, all we have to do is die and go to heaven. Now, these guys were ornery guys, man. In a good way, in a great way. They were ornery fellas. And I busted out laughing. I, I, I immediately busted out laughing. And, and, uh, and then I started looking around and, and like, this is the part where everyone else busts out laughing, right? I was the only one laughing. Everyone else is staring at me with such seriousness. 
All we have to do is die and go to heaven. After all, if your name is written in the book of life before the foundation of the world, is there any chance that you're not going to make it to heaven? God ordains the end. He's the God of the future. He's the God of the past. He's the God of our personal story. But He doesn't just decree the end. He also decrees the means to the end. And what do I mean by that? I want to flesh that out. In fact, in the next few minutes, I want to make this perfectly clear to all of you. Let's start just... Listen to these verses. They come from Genesis 15, verses 13 to 14, where God says, <clears throat> excuse me, my throat is terribly bothering me this morning. Um, uh, God says to Abraham, he says, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and it will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now, the reader of the Old Testament knows that what God is saying to Abraham concerns Israel when they're enslaved in Egypt. You know the story about Israel being in Egypt? It's where we get the story of the Passover from. God raises up Moses, right? <coughs> and he delivers Moses. We have a cough drop. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. The blessing of a lovely wife, man. Thank you so much. And she is lovely, isn't she? Amen. <laughs> She'll never give me another cough drop again. <clears throat> Israel ends up in captivity in Egypt, don't they? They end up enslaved in Egypt. And you remember this story, you know, when we were kids, sometimes we hear these stories. And, they, you know, in the back, they're hearing these stories now, you know, where... Uh, Moses' mom has a, a baby, and the, the problem is the baby's a little boy, and uh, Pharaoh's issued an edict that they're, they're to kill all the baby boys because Israel's multiplying like crazy. So she's scared. She wants to save his life. She realizes there's something special about him. She makes a little boat, and she puts Moses in a boat and puts him in the Nile River. And in God's providence, guess who finds little baby Moses in the boat? Pharaoh's daughter. And Pharaoh says, oh, look, it's one of those little Hebrew babies that daddy wants to kill. We're going to take him to the palace. And uh, she takes him to the palace and takes him in as their own. And then Pharaoh ends up raising Moses. And Moses receives the finest education in the world at that time, where he is really in a, in indoctrinated in military strategies and the whole nine yards, because Egypt is a superpower at that time. And Moses is there for 40 years, and he just, I think he has a sense of his call, but he takes matters into his own hands, and what's he do? He ends up killing an Egyptian, so he has to skip out of Dodge, where he gets the second stage of his training. He ends up out in the wilderness, shepherding sheep for 40 years. It's not until he's about 80 years old where he's sent back to Egypt to do what? Deliver Israel out of Egypt to make good on the promise that God gave to Abraham. You see, Israel couldn't just sit. Everybody couldn't just sit and wait for God to bring his, uh, his ends to an end, his decrees to an end. Uh, Moses had to go back to Pharaoh, didn't he? He had to do a lot of things that would have been very difficult to do. He had to pray. He had to teach. He had to lead. He had to guide. He had to suffer. He had to do all of these things to bring the, 
to bring the end about, didn't he? But you see, God decreed all of those things as well. When God decrees an outcome, he also decrees all of the means that uh, enable that outcome. Do you follow me? God promised to send a Messiah. He sends Jesus. Now, Jesus had to do more than just be born. He lived a perfect life, followed the law completely in thought, word, and deed, and then embarked in an earthly ministry for the last three years of his life where he preached the gospel and then finally followed the, the Father's will perfectly to the cross, died on the cross for the sins of people he came to save in order to save everyone. He had to do all of these things. And how many times when we studied Matthew did Jesus do something and then Matthew say, and such was the case so that the scriptures might be what? fulfilled. All of those means were part of the decree. Now, what's that got to do with us? Well, what that's got to do with us is we're called. God has names written in the book of life. That is true. But we can't just sit around and say, hey, all we got to do is die and go to heaven. We got to preach the gospel. We got to pray for the salvation of souls. We got to put up doors. You know, we got to install carpets. We got to get the microphone working this morning so that we can have a service. We got to do all of this stuff. You see, all of this stuff is playing a role here. Everything is playing a role here. Now, I want to tenderize this a little bit more. Because sometimes when it comes to serving God, it scares us. You know, when it comes, ah, Rick, you know, when you start talking about sharing the gospel, I know what you mean, and you know, you mean, and I got to go to a workplace, and I got I to tell somebody about Jesus, and I got to, that's scary, and it just scares the daylights out of me. Man, I know all about that. I used to be able to go to Columbiana County Jail. I shared this in Pap's eulogy yesterday. I used to be able to go to Columbiana County Jail, and I had no problem sharing the gospel to 30 or 40 inmates. In some cases, I was half the size of the smallest guy in the room. It never bothered me at all doing that. It was a pleasure to do that. But I would get in the car and drive out to talk to my grandfather about Jesus. Whew. I'd sit out there and we'd be silent for an hour and I'd drive home having never said a word. I know it's really scary. I know it's hard. Other times I'd go out and I would start and I would try to share the gospel with him. And he, I'm going to tell you what. Some of you are probably under the impression that when I sit down with Grandpap, he probably really got a good message. You know, he really got, he got everything said so clearly to him. No, he didn't. He got the worst evangelism that I've ever done in my life over and over again, repeatedly. He would often look at me very confused and I would think, what happened? What went wrong? Here's how I want to tenderize this. You know, when you were little kids, and you were in class and the teacher passed out the little pages from the coloring book and you got your little crayons out and, and the teacher would say, you know, do something for mom. And you'd put your best, I mean, you would try to get that, you'd try to get that wax between those lines and you'd do the best, but you don't have a lot of coordination yet in your hands and you're really never going to be an artist. I mean, that's a given, that's a given. But you're doing your very best and you bring this thing home. And what happens when you bring it home? I'll tell you what happens in our household when the kids bring stuff like that to our house. You know what happens to it? 
goes on the refrigerator door. And we're sinful. God is not sinful. God is a perfectly loving God. We're frail. We're full of sin. We're full of all kinds of ugly stuff. When we put our foot forward to serve our Lord and we bring our offering to the Lord, He doesn't insult the work. He puts it on the refrigerator door. You see, God could do all of this without us. He could just, he could just decree the ends and not even need any of the means. He doesn't need us to do this. But he wants us to. The reason for that is, and this is the last thing I want to share with you, is because he wants to share in the blessing. I believe that my grandfather is with the Lord right now in unspeakable joy, gazing at the very glory of the Lord with, man, it, my grandfather knows more about all of this right now than I then I'm, I'm, I'm never going to know in this life until I go through the door too. But I was part of putting him up there. I played a role in my grandfather's salvation with those horrible evangelism. You know, Pap sat right where Tommy's sitting how many weeks after week after week. He came to the coffee yards. He came to the Bible studies. I, I don't know how many times I went home just thinking, oh my goodness, I mean, is he getting this? Is he getting this? Is he getting this? When mom called and said that he had, she had found him on the floor, I shared this yesterday in the eulogy. I, I didn't immediately go to the hospital. I went to, my, I went to our house, and, and I went into our bedroom, and I shut the door, and I fell flat on my face. And I cried out for his soul. I cried out that the Lord would come alongside of him with his regenerating grace, and, and that's... Uh, uh, that he would surround him with his, with his love and mercy. And, and uh, I prayed until I had this unbelievable sense of peace about me. And then I went to the hospital, and me and Mom went back to see Pap. When it was our turn to go back and see him, the first thing I asked him, Pap, are you trusting in the Lord? And he went like this very rapidly. And his face of glue will never forget. Glue, just glows, glowing. Okay. The privilege of being part of that is unspeakable. When God calls us to serve Him, in whatever way He calls us to serve Him, we need to understand. Let's quit thinking about it as a duty, because it's a privilege. And our efforts, our work, we're his children. We're, we're the father's children. Our work is not perfect, is it? Our work oftentimes looks like the little papers we used to do as children. But when you hand those papers to a good parent, what does the parent do? The parent puts the picture on the refrigerator. I brought my mama an honor roll one time, I brought it home in the seventh grade or something, and it was on the refrigerator until it started to yellow because it was the only one I ever brought her, you know. Didn't get another one until I went to college. 
God is sovereign. We're responsible. But don't let the responsibility, don't let it scare you because it's a privilege, isn't it? To be part of serving the Lord. Amen. Heavenly Father, Lord, even this sermon this morning, Father, is like one of those pictures. I can see it now hanging on your refrigerator door, Father, with all of its flaws and all of the things that are wrong with it, Father. But, Lord, we rejoice in this morning that this sermon is also precious in your sight, Father, for you. Lord, you are responsible for writing it. And, Father, I don't want to say that to make you responsible for its flaws. But, Father, you, uh, you work with us as we work. You enable us. You work in our hearts and enable us to work. So, Father, we thank you for the glorious privilege of not only, as we say at the beginning of our session meetings, it's such a privilege to, to just be in Christ and to be following you, but what a privilege it is to serve you. So, Father, I pray, Lord, you'd fill our hearts afresh this morning with just the joy of the privilege that you have given us, Father. You've done so much more than just call us to yourself. You've wanted to share the blessing of bringing redemption to this world. And you have given us a period of time, a limited period of time, a period of time that we won't be able to duplicate in all of, his, in all of eternity. But we have a period of time now that we can serve you. And what a glorious privilege it is, O oh Father. So enable us and use us to these ends in Jesus' name. Amen.